Now entering Nerdist.com. Today's episode was recorded at the ATX Television Festival in Austin. Uh, season 4, which was this year, first weekend in June 2015. We had so much fun at ATX this year. It was bigger and better than it ever was. I don't know why you're not coming next year. Go to ATXFestival.com and get your badge for next year. Don't wait to find out who's going to be there, because if you wait to find out who's going to be there, you're going to miss an opportunity to get your badge. Go to ATXFestival.com. This year, my pal Todd Cooper and I got the opportunity to write a theme song for ATX, uh, and we had a lot of fun doing it. They wound up recording uh, different music to the lyrics that we wrote, but we are really partial to the version that we did, so you're going to hear that before every ATX-recorded podcast that I put out. So please... Go to ATXFestival.com and get your badge for 2016 and enjoy this theme song that we wrote. TV family, we're glad you came, where everybody knows your name. Greatest scene you've ever seen on either side of your TV screen. So keep it weird and beat the Texas heat. Quickly, uh, starting here with Mickey, tell us when your, what your show is, when it premieres, and any other pertinent information we need to know. Then we'll get to an actual conversation. Sure. Um, Extant, uh, it's a mystery thriller starring Academy Award winner Halle Berry, uh, executive produced by uh, Mr. Steven Spielberg, another indie filmmaker who's, uh, who's making good. Um, it premieres uh, Wednesday, July 1st at 10 p.m. Right on. And uh, Zoo is a... It's a global thriller about animals around the world starting to turn in their behavior and sort of turn on mankind and about the team of researchers, scientists, and animal experts racing around the globe trying to figure out what happened, what's happening, why it's happening, and how to stop it. It's based on a great James Patterson book, and um, it premieres Tuesday, June 30th, 9 p.m. on CBS. Very good. <laughs> Um, that's, I'm still obviously some electrical. Is this on now? Yeah. Oh, that works. Yes. Okay. Hold, uh, it, hold it like an ice cream cone. Under the Dome <laughs> is a show, unsurprisingly, about people under a dome. Uh, it's uh, in our third season. We're premiering on June 25th in a two-hour premiere, uh, and we're very excited about it. I, and I have seen all of your programs. They're all very enjoyable. Um, Thank you. Under the Dome takes a turn in this premiere. Yes. Season premiere. Like, shit happens. Yes. It goes crazy. Yeah, and you haven't even seen it. No, I saw it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It does. It's like we were talking earlier that there is a little bit of a paradigm shift this year. 
in that at the end of the last season, we left our characters down in a tunnel with all sorts of catastrophes happening around them, and they sort of entered into this white light, this mysterious white light. This season will pick up right where last season picked up, like left off, but we'll learn that as they go through this mysterious white channel, they're sort of transported into a different world, a kind of alternate reality. And the question is, is that real? Is it not real? What happens to the people they left behind? And there will also be a lot of answers this season. There's the perennial... Um, dissatisfaction, I think, with some viewers of shows that pose all these questions and don't answer them. But this season, we will learn why the Dome is there, what it is there for, and what's going to happen to it. Well, this is something I kind of wanted to open up to all of you guys. Uh, and we got to it a lot faster than I thought we would. <laughs> but, you know, there is this sort of loss syndrome, right? That, you know, viewers in many ways feel they've been burned by not having concrete answers. Mm-hmm. When oftentimes, in a writer's room, that's not what the show's about. You know, if you talk to Carlton and Damon in the first couple seasons of Lost, it was never about what's in the hatch. It's about the discovery of the characters. Uh, how do you guys juggle that in your various writers' rooms? And and for you guys who who created the shows, I mean, you obviously have a blueprint, Josh, to go by, which is the Patterson book. But you know, you're introducing mysteries. Is there an end game, or is it about figuring it out as you go? It's so funny for us. We you know, a bunch of us worked on a show years ago, Alias. Mm-hmm. And on Alias, we got... It was such an amazing show to work on, but we got very caught up in asking all these questions. It was, it was the Lost thing, in, in a, sort of before Lost. And we really said to ourselves with this, let's make it about the characters. Let's make it about the ride. There are questions. We are answering them in a way I think audiences will find satisfying. But, like... Let's just entertain the shit out of people for 13 episodes and, you know, they're just going to go with this journey and not... And, but, but I think part of it is taking the, the, the show can't be... I think Lost, and it wasn't Damon and Carlton's fault at all, yeah. but it be, everybody became so much more obsessed with the question of what is the island than I think they ever were. So I think it's sort of trying to pull back off of that a little bit um, in the show. I think that's smart. That's really. How do you deal with it on Xpan? Yeah, well, I think we, you know, we got the question early on too. Like, you know, do you have an ending for this thing? And it was such a you know, like a sort of constant, uh, you know, a constant question. And I, and I realized, like, and as a fan of that, because I love Lost, you know, so much, and, and even you know, for the, you know, the 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 sideways worlds and all those kind of things. And, I, and for the same reason that you were saying too, which is that I kind of knew going on, like the questions were always made me want to know what happens next. And as a viewer, like that's kind of always one of the things I'm really interested in. But like when I, when I came up with the idea for the show, the idea was always that it was a world that would evolve, you know, as humans are presented with these challenges with, um, you know, first contact and with the, the emergence of this sort of all powerful, uh, AI and how do humans adapt and survive? So it was never meant to have, you know, a definitive ending. There was no central mystery. Like, are they ever going to get off the island? Are they ever, you know, are we going to find out which life is is the real one, the one, you know, the red or the the red or the green one or whatever? You know, like it was sort of. I know, and uh, like, and I as a huge fan of those too. But so, but I, I feel like ours was positioned a little bit differently in that I kind of felt like it could go on for a number of seasons and always explore the new questions. And, and because we're dealing with. You know, we try to always approach these these big moral and ethical questions about technology and where we're headed with you know artificial intelligence, that stuff that that we could adapt and grow as new questions emerged. Yeah. And so it was always meant to be about like I was pitched as it's the origin of a sci-fi age, you know, in the story. And so we could always grow and adapt, and there was no definitive. And that being said, like I personally have like in my heart, I know sort of where I want it to, you know, to end up, and the last things that I would like to see once we we finally come to that ending. So well, and there's something very smart about making it a show about why, uh, a show about how instead of why. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, it's not a mystery; it's an exploration. I think that's tough, though, with network. I mean, like there's there's generally a lot more pressure put on the why uh, than than the how. And with with our show, I feel like it's it's been this constant negotiation with with the network who pays for the show about between mythology and like incident, you know. And very often, I think mythology gets short shrift and incident gets put on a higher pedestal. And what's been fun about this season, it feels like finally the balance is shifting a little bit more into the mythology direction, which is something that we were always much more interested in the first place, so we finally do get to answer questions instead of like... I remember what was always what was so wonderful about what happened with Lost is that they were such a success that they were able to sort of figure out when their end date was going to be and then get to stop spinning their wheels and start answering questions. Now, we don't have an end date, but at the same time, it's nice to finally be able to start 
answering some of those things that the audience is interested in. And that's always going to suggest more questions I mean, if, yeah. if you have strong characters. Which yeah. you it's interesting, too, thinking about the lost effect on, on our show. You know, it's this idea that animals are starting, their, their behavior is starting to turn. And, you know, in, in another universe, you know, we would really be taking our time moving that along. And, and it would take, you know... Maybe a network would say it should be, you know, several seasons until it becomes global and it's really sort of everywhere. And I, for whatever it was worth, it was they said to us right up top, like, this shit's got to cook. And so, <laughs> and so it, it really does. And it's been great for the show. But, like, you know, again, I think maybe before Lost, they would have wanted you to step it out more. But now it's like... They're like, go for it, guys. Yeah. Maybe it's the under a dome, under the dome effect. <laughs> yeah, we'll, it's all our fault. You can blame it all. <laughs> what are uh, for each of you the particular pleasures of your show, your current show, of writing it? Oh, I can say. I, I mean, I'll, I'll jump in and then say too that you know, like it's always a pleasure to 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 write something and hand it over to somebody like Halle Perry. You know, she's a, an Academy Award winning actor and, and, and she is that person for a reason. And, and so, you know, even at times like a show like ours, it's you know, heavily serialized and there is a lot of mythology and stuff too. So you end up having to write things that are, you know, sometimes sort of expository and, and, but you hand it to an actor like that and you watch them bring it to life and, and, and make it work and then, and, or watch them, you know, with an emotional scene and bring so much like, um, uh, just like you know, genuine like emotional authenticity to it, and so so she's great. And we have Jeffrey Dean Morgan this season too, who's awesome. another guy like that. Like you just give him these lines and you watch him, you watch him deliver. I have such a man crush on him, like from from moment one where I met him. I'm like God, this is the most you like person. Denny from uh, Grey's Anatomy, <laughs> right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Denny Duquette, uh, and uh, so I, uh, I. But then also we have Pierce Gagnon who plays Ethan. He plays our little uh, you know our little humanic, our robot in the show, and. And he's a kid actor, but he was just in Tomorrowland, and he was a kid in Looper, and and he's a phenomenal guy. And I and I always say like something, he's my spirit animal in a sense, like that character too, because everything that I, all my questions, own personal questions about you know life and death and why are we here and all those kind of things are sort of like, are are kind of poured into him in that sense. So that's like a pleasure for me to be able to explore all those themes with those really great actors. I, I mean, the crazy thing for us is working with these animals. You know, it's like I wouldn't. We started the show, we were like, how are we going to do this exactly? <laughs> like, is it going to be real animals? Is it all going to be computer graphics? And it's turned out that I would say 80% of it has been working with live animals. It's nuts. Well, your yeah. lion budget must be enormous. We have a huge <laughs> lion budget. Exactly. Or is it just a, does it all fall under big cats? Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, it's cra- I don't know what you should, but like, we have. We have lions, we have bears, we have leopards, we have... I mean, it's just insane. And, yeah, I mean, like, for the first, in the first two episodes, like, all the lions you see in the promos, like, those were real lions flown in to Louisiana <laughs> where we were shooting and working with our actors. You know, there's, like, a little wire there, but, like, it, it just created this inauthenticity to all the scenes, but... Um, it just created this energy on the set. You know, when, when, you're, when James Wolk seems scared of the lion, he's fucking scared of the lion. <laughs> it's, it, you know, it's funny. That energy absolutely comes across. I mean, I was looking at, like, you created Happy Town, mm-hmm. right? Which is a great show, and Life on Mars adapted that. Like, these were great shows, but there's a looseness to Zoo. There's, like, a, a, this energy that you're talking about, which really comes across. That was definitely part part of of the feel, was to give it sort of a, you know, again, the show, which wasn't necessarily part of the initial conception, but it really, it it goes around the globe, you know, because it's a global problem, we jump, you know, we go all around the world, and we wanted it, though, to feel, again, because the problem was sort of out of control, we wanted the show to feel kind of looser and scrappier and more sort of real and relatable because because the idea is so, you know, on the one hand, it's believable. On the other hand, it's sort of a big sci-fi idea. We wanted the show to feel kind of more looser and relatable. It absolutely worked. That's really awesome. smart. Thanks, uh, what about you, Adam? What, what's the fun of working on Under the Dome? Uh, it was, it's interesting. It's sort of picking up on something that Mickey said, too. We were talking before about coming from the world of theater and, and having been an actor before being a writer. Um, there's something very gratifying when, when you write a line, I think, that, that comes out really well. I find that it's, and it's strange, like having a, like an actor like Dean Norris, who's on the show, 
um, for whatever reason, I feel like I can channel the big Jim character in a way that, you know, it comes very easily for whatever reason. It's just a very sort of um, solid character. And, and when and when you write a line for someone like Dean, when he clearly relishes saying it, and it comes out in a way that is exactly what you wanted or, or sort of surpasses what it was you wanted, that's always very, very gratifying okay. to me. Yeah. yeah. There, I, we were talking earlier, and I do want to talk about this stuff because it is... Fascinating to me that uh, Mickey and Adam, you guys both started out as performers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that and, and specifically how you started writing? Sure. I, I actually went to school for musical theater. Uh, I started like doing musicals in, in high school and, uh, and I went to this conservatory music in Cincinnati, the, the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory Music. And, um, and my whole uh, you know, like hope and, and goal in life, I wanted to be you know, on Broadway. Um, but I got to school, and I lived not very far from this um, this small art house theater called the Esquire Theater. And it was right at the time of that huge, like, independent film boom with Robert Rodriguez, you know, uh, Austin favorite son, and uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino and and uh, Kevin Smith and all these guys. And I was going to see movies that uh, you know before that I'd always you know always seen like you know blockbusters and all these things. And now I was going to see movies that people were making on their credit cards. You know, guys like me were making, and also because. I was I always sort of looked like this, you know, relative to my age. And my <laughs> teachers were always like, look, you're a good character actor. You're not going to work until you're in your 40s. And so I didn't want to wait that long. So I started writing stuff for myself to perform. And, and by the time I left college, uh, and then it became about, you know, sort of directing the things that I wrote and putting myself in them. And by, so by the time I left college, I wanted to be a writer as much, if not more, than I wanted to be an actor. What, what kind of stories were you telling in the early writings? Uh, so, <laughs> this is where we dig it up. Yeah. I'm asking both of you also. So the we, so the weird dichotomy is that like you know at night I was doing you know like you know Daddy Warbucks and Annie, uh, but I was also like a huge fan of you know Tarantino and those things. So the very first thing I fi- the very first full length feature I finished. I lived in Chicago for a year and I finished this um, feature and it, and it's really I feel like when I became a writer this year that I spent just writing hundreds and thousands of like really terrible pages and um, and I finished this script and it was a crime fiction drama. And I sat down to read it. And I was so proud of myself. And I finished it. And I was like, this is terrible. <laughs> like, this is, it's just a Quentin Tarantino kind of knockoff thing. And that's the kind of stuff I was writing early on, you know, before that moment that people always talk about with writers, which is like, you know, finding your voice as a writer. And I was really like aping somebody else's voice. But it, it was like, play, it, you know, it's like a guitarist picking up and playing a cover song. Absolutely. You know, like it's that. The practice you need. It's the practice you need, exactly. And eventually I feel like, you know, for me, I kind of felt like, you know, with this specific pilot was the first time I sat down to write something that um, I also made a couple independent films in the meantime. I started making my own stuff. Right. And I had this realization of like the first film that I made, if I saw it in a festival brochure, I wouldn't go see it because I'm a genre guy. Like I wouldn't go see my own movie. And that's a horrible thing to say about something you've worked on for four years of your life, you know. So but I was a genre guy. Anything with like capes, types, superheroes, you know, aliens, I'm there opening night. And so. I really sat down to write a pilot that would be the thing that I would want to watch the most. You know, my two things I was watching the most of the time were Doctor Who and Friday Night Lights. And I watched this like, and so I wrote this show that was like about aliens and robots and uh, a family at the center of it, you know? <laughs> that's great. And I found my voice. Yeah, I never would have seen that DNA in it, but that's really smart. Yeah. Uh, I want to jump over here to Adam and then we'll come to you, Josh. But but tell me, so you started out as a performer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and how did you transition to writing? It, it was very, it, my, my, my career has kind of luckily been a very organic kind of process of moving from one thing to another. I went to, I went to college and I moved to New York and was just acting in New York for a few years. Then I went to NYU for the graduate acting program and came out of that and was just acting in regional theater and in New York and doing the occasional Law and Order guest spot. Um, but then it, it, it was it was probably about seven years or so after I got out of grad school, and there was a guy who was a year ahead of me in grad school named Glenn Kessler, who was one of the creators of Damages. And so it was right around the time that they had shot the pilot for Damages, and I was at a you know someone's birthday party dinner with Glenn, and he said, yeah, we just got picked up for the series. Uh, we have no idea what we're doing. Uh, and I said, you know, I, I'm really curious about television. I'd love to be involved in some way. And he said, okay, uh, maybe. <laughs> and then like a month went by, and he called me and was like, look, um, we can't put you on stage. I had written plays and stuff in the, in the meantime, and he had known about my writing. I'd written for magazines and stuff like that. Um, but he said, look, we can't put you on staff. 
uh, both Sony and FX say they will absolutely not do that. But like, uh, we'd love to have you come aboard as a writer's assistant for the first year. And you know, uh, if things work well, we'll give you a script that first season. And if things continue to go well, we'll try to put you on staff for the second season. And all that shit happened. And which is kind of great. I mean, the Kesslers are very loyal people. And so like, they're good. They keep their word. And so it was just a very lucky happenstance of being in the right place at the right time, knowing the right people, having the context in terms of my relationships, and then also being able to do it. Right. Well, that, uh, that was my next question. I mean, you are thrown into a writer's room as the writer's assistant, which is a big responsibility. Yeah, this was, this was not your traditional okay. writer's room. Uh, damages, and, and I, I can't speak to Bloodline, but I mean, like, I'm sure it's fairly similar to the way the damages work, which was a very unorthodox How way so? of working. How did it work? It was, well, it was, it's very funny. Like, I, it was, so it was Glenn and Todd and Daniel. It's uh, Glenn Kessler, Todd Kessler, and Dan Zellman, who all knew each other from college. They all went to Harvard. Uh, and so, like, then they very quickly decided... They, they got picked up very fast, and they decided, okay, we need some other people, so they hired uh, a friend of theirs from Harvard named uh, Mark Fish, who had written on a couple of other shows. They brought him in, I think, as a co-producer. And then Daniel's brother, Aaron Zellman, who recently uh, did a show on ABC, Resurrect- Resurrection, uh, he had already been writing, writing for TV for a while, and so they just brought him in just to sort of hang around. And then he brought another friend of theirs from Harvard in named uh, Jeremy Doner, who, is, who had never written for television, but written screenplays, and then he came in and was just sort of hanging around. No one was under contract. It was just like they just brought them in, and then I was, I went to Yale, so it's like, it's not, I shouldn't say. You know, because, I mean, like, I, it's like, I should say. That's no like, one was going to out you. Yeah, I'm kind of an asshole. Uh, I love listening to their Harvard stories, though. Um, and I'm sure they love telling them. Yeah, they, they really <laughs> fucking do. Like, I've heard more about hasty pudding than like... But it was, so it was the seven of us, and like, a writer's assistant generally, you know, like, has, like you're saying, like, real responsibilities of taking copious notes, keeping everything straight, but it wasn't like that. Like, I took no notes. I was basically just a part of the staff, essentially, and no one, no one was ever assigned a script. So like, all scripts that first season of Damages were written as a group. And then they just sort of credit was just kind of farmed out arbitrarily. Um, but it was a great learning experience. Like I learned how to write for television that first. It was more, Mark Fish more than any. Mark Fish who's now, I think, executive producer on Scandal, who's, who's really just gone on. He's a wonderful writer and a terrific guy. But like he really kind of helped me a lot in terms of learning the structure and everything. That's really interesting. And you were there for a couple of years, right? For the first three seasons. Yeah. yeah. So did it eventually turn into a more... No. Really? They did it this <laughs> no. way for three No, it's always just very... It's, it's very sui generis. You know, it's its own thing. And, and like they just have their own way of doing it. And, you know, like, everyone kind of throws ideas in and then Glenn and Todd and Dan will kind of retreat to an office and, like, yell at each other for hours and then they'll come out with a script. That's very interesting. I mean, and, and every show has a unique approach to a writer's room, but there are similarities. But that's a very... Yeah, I was never... Like, when I got on my next job, like, I didn't know I could write a script by myself. Sure. Like, it was, it was very nerve-wracking, but it, it turns out I, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> You've ruined the end of the story. <laughs> um, Josh, tell us about how you got, it, got started, because I think you had a more uh, directed path. It seemed like you knew you wanted to write. Yeah, I, I had always... You know, yes, I, I, I had always been interested in writing. I applied to film school uh, four times, never got in. I actually went to U.S. I applied to USC film school, didn't get in, said, all right, I'm going out there anyway. Went to USC, became a, um, a creative writing major, writing short stories, but constantly reapplying to film school, never got accepted because I was an awful student. And there was like a, you had to have like a, you know, 3.6 or above. And that just, like, I couldn't make that happen. So, um, <laughs> but um, it, it ended up being a great experience because writing short stories and, and sort of, I think in some ways, not going to film school as great as it would have been, not going gave me a whole other perspective that was fantastic. And um, yeah, my writing partner and I, We've known each other since the third grade, Andre Nemec. Yeah, from back in New York. And he was, he was coming out to L.A. while I was at USC to be an actor. And he was, like, auditioning for all these pilots and not getting, you know, cast in anything or cast in stuff he liked. And we said, I got an idea. Like, let's write a pilot together. And at the time, it was, you'll star in it, and I'll direct it, and we'll have our own TV show. And we Absolutely wrote it. Works. Yeah, how it hard could it be? Like, exactly. It was just like that. And, um, yeah... It, we wrote it. Nobody, we couldn't get anybody to read it. 
I moved back to New York, actually. I was working as an assistant for Tom Fontana on the show Homicide, which was like a huge deal. I was such a fan of the show. One of my all-time favorites. Yeah, no, it was amazing. Um, but And actually, that, but while that was happening, I mean, it's such a random story. The way we our, our career started, we Andre, I was working for Tom in New York. Andre was working, was still trying to act. He was at the same time folding shirts at The Gap. A girl he worked with at The Gap moonlit at the Cheesecake Factory. One night, she waited on a guy and said, who asked her out on a date. And she said, the only way I'll, I'll go out with you is if you read my friend's script, which was our script that we had written a year before nobody had read. And... Now, another two months went by. The guy never read the script, never called her. Maybe one night he decided he, he was lonely and he wanted to call the script. He said, shit, I got to read this script first. He read the script, said, hey, this ain't so bad. His name's Ari Greenberg at, at, at WME. He read it. Next thing I know, I get a phone call. I fly out to L.A. We signed with WME, which was Endeavor at the time, and that was, uh, that was the beginning of that. Yes. Who is this girl? Have you yeah, I was going to ask about her. By the way, the funniest part is we've like, I, I, I really, Andre knew where I didn't, and I tried to reach out to her, and she just she doesn't give a shit. <laughs> it's like, I, we owe everything to you, and she's like, fine. I, is, I she, is she Mrs. Ari now? Right now, exactly. No, not at all. <laughs> that is it's so funny because when people are always like, how do you get an agent? I'm like, the way we did it is rather unconventional. That's pretty much how it's done. Yes. Um, so was this script that you guys write, and this was a, a spec pilot? That's right. And So was this your calling card for a bit? And is, did you kind of go through the typical staff? Um, yeah, we, had a, we really did, like you said. We had a, a, a pretty traditional trajectory. We, you know, um, that script got us jobs working on Shows again. This was a long time. This was you know we we were twenty two years old. We were working on shows like Early Edition and Profiler, like all these. And um, and it's interesting. The, the best advice you had a much different experience, and your spec script was much better than ours. <laughs> um, I was forty. Not, though, not so even yeah. in the same. Well, no, but that he, it's interesting. Our our agent said to us, we were young and we were like, we want to make this pilot, and he said. No. He was like, what I want you guys to do is use this to start at the bottom as staff writers, work your way up, learn how television is made, and in five to ten years, when you know everything, then you can have your own show. And then, because then you guys can run it, and you guys could do it, and you guys can own it, and we were, of course, like, five sounds better than ten, if possible, <laughs> but it was actually the best advice we ever had because we we stuck to it and it was about 10 years later we you know and we again by the time we were on alias we were you know co-executive producers and really kind of rolling up our sleeves and knowing how the the show worked and then we did our first show um and just knew how to be showrunners and it, and it was it was nice to do a job that you felt you know capable Absolutely. of doing is, is, uh was jj running alias he was um I mean, he was always... He wasn't running a day-to-day at that okay. point, no. He was always, you know, very much present, very involved in everything we were doing and always our sort of guiding light and everything, yeah. but he wasn't running a day Well, I, I mean, my real question is, as a staff writer on that show or on, you know, as whatever level... Writer, right, right, right. Are you involved in the day-to-day of production as well as the writer's room? That show, it, it varies, okay. for sure. Um... We like, when we're running shows, we like the writer of record to be very involved in their episode, to produce the episode, you know. Even if it means, like when we did Life on Mars, the show shot in New York, but the staff was in L.A., we'd make sure that writers were flown out for the prep and shooting of their episodes. They would see them through post. I think it helps both, you know... It, it helps the people on set. It helps the actors know that there's a writer there to bounce off of. It helps the show because the, the story is being protected. And it just makes, you know, the more that the writers are involved in everything, the better. Sometimes you just can't make that happen. Actually, on Zoo, we, it just didn't work out in such a way. The staff is so small with a 13-episode order. If you start letting, get, sending writers off to set, there's nobody in the writer's room all of a sudden yeah. um, to prep and for shooting. But... Um, 
on Alias, we were we that was different. We were all in Burbank. Writers' room was there. The sound stages were there, so it was awesome. We would just like yeah, you would just like bounce over the set and watch something be shot, you know. But that show also, you know, that was like you know twenty two. You know these these shows we're doing here with these thirteen <laughs> episodes, it's awesome because it's twenty two is hard, and so. Yeah, on Alias, by the time we were getting around to episode 16 or 17 in the season, it was like we were scrambling to get scripts written in time to catch up with the production. It was intense. But what an amazing training ground. I mean, it was amazing. All, any it was of those incredible. early edition, like, they were workmanlike shows in a lot of ways. For sure. It was like, these are pros who have been around doing this. Like, there's so much to learn from that, I imagine. That's true. There's a guy named Jeff Melvoin who I mm-hmm. always like to point out because he, for a lot of people, he created the showrunners training program for the writers guild but he was the showrunner on on early edition and he works he's worked on a lot of you know great shows but he um he's somebody that people say like you know go work for jeff melvoin for a year or two he's like a rabbi and sort of a, he, and and really his mainly what he teaches you is how to run a show with and with humanity and treating people well and making everybody feel ownership of the show and feel good about what they do and and keeping family life important and all that stuff. So oh, that's great. That's really nice yeah. to hear. It's nice to hear there are guys out there. No, he's <laughs> and, and it's nice that he runs the showrunners training program for that next oh. generation. He's the, instilling that, which Absolutely. is great. Um, Mickey, I want to ask you. You know, Exant is your first show. Uh, so presumably they had to bring in a showrunner. What is it like working on a show that you created that you know this world, but you're really not the boss? Yeah, yeah. It was. I mean, it's weird. The it, it's my first job in television. You know, like when we started, the you know the writer's assistant assistant had you know three more years of uh, you know television experience than I had. But I'd spent twenty years of you know making my own things, writing and directing my own films. I'm doing a lot of writing, directing theater, and, and so I had a, a lot of training going into it. And I think that is part of what allowed me to uh, you know I think that's why people felt and I had a vision coming in for it too you know I had I, I had I wrote the pilot and then I wrote a whole overview sort of document for myself about the season and the series and where it could go and I lived with it in my head for a year before I ever showed it to anybody and um, so when I sat down with you know Amblin for the first time and they you know, asked me all these questions I had a ton of answers you know where I wanted to go and the things I wanted to see and and um, and I think just having that um, allowed me a place at the table um, as an executive producer on the show too, you know, and also because I think, you know, I'd spent 20 years, you know, training myself to be a writer and, um, and so, and, and in some ways like the, you know, transitioning from theater to making the show, you know, like at the core level, it's the same, you're putting on a show, you know, you're making entertainment, you're, there are a lot of stages that are very similar in casting and that kind of thing, um, just on a so much bigger level. But in terms of like, you know, it's, it's handing over tens of millions of dollars, never going to give it to a guy. It's not, it's not an entry level position, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, here's here, sir, come in and do this uh, heart surgery, uh, you know, that you've never done before. That's a credit to you because a lot of people that, you know, do sell a pilot, and even if they get to work on it, to get an executive producer credit, that's not common. Yeah, and I mean, I think a lot of it's really good, you know, good agents too, right? Yeah. But uh, but also, I was very, I, I just, I was open and collaborative, and I had a vision, and I wasn't afraid to like speak up, you know. And so I think that that sort of helped too. And and um, so, but when we brought, we started looking for people to run the show and for somebody I could learn with, and they were really looking for exactly the same kind of thing, like. Uh, 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 you know, Eric Greenberg is part of the process again. Uh, he was looking for guys that would be like good partners and and the same sort of thing. Somebody that was I could learn from and who would be a mentor and not just elbow me to the side. And so, you know, the, we had these meetings where I you know started meeting these showrunners, established people who've been around for a while and uh, you know well respected and and um, and they're a little like arranged marriages, you know, where they're like you know they're the uh, you know the two prospective uh, uh, you know parties are coming to meet and the parents are there, you know, the Amblin producers and um, so. <laughs> <laughs> like all overseeing it. Um, and we just clicked, you know, right away. And so I made the decision early. I knew, not made the decision, but I sort of knew my position was if if that person was going to have as much invested in the show as me, it had to be as much theirs as it was mine. And so I just came from the beginning and said, look, this is our show now. Like, here's all the ideas that I have. I just, you know, it's like, it's like having all, you know, like when I was a kid and had all my star Wars toys in the sandbox, like it was always pretty fun playing it by myself. But when you had a friend over and they could be, you know, Lando Calrissian or whatever you like, then it was more fun, you know? And it was the same way with the story and having, having Greg to bounce back and forth. And then this season, it's sort of the same way. I really lucked out both times. We have 
new showrunners, uh, Liz Kruger and Craig Shapiro. They're a husband and wife uh, team. And, um, and it's the same way. They're good people and they're fun to work with and they're very collaborative. And, and, and so it's been kind of like a, um, an easy relationship both times. And that being said, it is a little weird at times because I go, you know, like as the creator and not, and not the showrunner, you don't, the showrunners have the final say. So I do, you know, at times I go like, you know, it's, I, I'm, I'm, I can get behind that. You know, it's not necessarily maybe the way I would do it, but that's the way that I'm, let's do it. You know, well, it sounds like, you know, when to choose what's important to you for yeah. the story and, and, and came in with the right attitude. I mean, this is a highly collaborative medium. Absolutely. It's a team sport for sure. Yeah, for sure. All right. Let's get to your questions. You guys have them. Uh, this is a question oh, for uh, about. I guess I'm not calling on people. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Stand up. Sorry, sorry. Stand up, please. I apologize. I thought I had the mic, so I thought that meant it was me. Um, my question is about Zoo. How do you overcome an audience's natural, uh, let's say, allegiance to animals over humans if the animals are supposed to be your villains? We thought about that. We're like, if the animals are turning people, be like, kill them all! Kill them all! We're all animal lovers. The show isn't about, you know, the, the show is something is wrong with the animals. They are becoming more aggressive towards us. We are racing f- to find a cure, to heal them ultimately so we can coexist. And truly, if you are an animal lover, there is a little bit, in a fun way, that component of, you know, at times you are sort of rooting for the animals to take over. But we're, we're super cognizant of that, all animal lovers, and uh, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, same question about dome. Right, exactly. Um, dome lovers. Dome lovers out there. We uh, we actually try to kill as many animals on our show as possible. And, well, and by well, and by the way, and you said that, and just so you know as well, truly, we're not we don't kill animals on the show. That's never. I didn't mean to imply that at all. <laughs> no, 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 no. We just kill domes. It's got ugly immediately. This lady right here. Yes. Cool. Stand up, please. Okay. Hi, all. My question is for all of you. Um, so how do you find that happy medium between being, it being, because y'all do sci-fi shows, having that touch of realness, but also being like fantasy? Good question. Uh, I I think it's, uh, so much of it is based on the characters, right? You know, like if you keep your characters grounded and their relationships grounded, you know, the craziness that surrounds them can, can be sort of set off as a tonic, you know? So I think that's where, in, in my mind, when there's, ridiculous stuff happening with like giant transparent domes cutting people off from civilization you know like you have to focus more on what what these characters are doing how they're dealing with that dynamic inside so that's kind of how we do it. i think for us we you know we from the beginning we knew you know like wanted a grounded world and a sort of relatable science fiction world that something that would bring people in um that felt like a logical evolution of where we're going to be now. Cause it said just a little bit in the future. And so we didn't want to, you know, pack every frame with like flying cars and, you know, things, all that kind of stuff. We wanted to really be about the characters and then, and then add those little touches. You know, it's almost like, um, uh, you know, curry you know, or something like that. Like, you know, you, you give it a little bit of like uh, the spice. We had this sign in the writer's room for a while that said, you know, cool shit gets thrown away, which is like, we never wanted a scene to be about the gadget or the, you know, the piece of technology, we just wanted to, we wanted to complement it and be in the background. And, and I think for us, definitely the characters, but we're a little unique in that this show is about the beginning of something, so you're really going to be brought in on it with, with our characters in this world. There's something happening with the animals that isn't quite right, so I think that mystery element and sort of leaning into, you know, the mystery and watching it sort of build, I think that's going to make it very relatable for the audience to kind of go on that journey because you're with them. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, yes, the fellow right behind, behind you. Hi. Hi. Thanks. Um, yeah, for all of this, is a question for everyone. Were there any lessons or uh, experiences you had earlier in your careers that have really stuck with you throughout your time in television? I can tell, well, I'll say quickly because this, this is my first job, but the thing I brought to like my... Um, my sort of two rules always when I was like directing theater too was I never lied to anybody and I never took anything personally. And that was like, those are my two rules sort of about my day. And I found that like, I still apply those sort of every day. You know, I never want to try to, you know, cover, cover for myself or somebody else. And I also like, I never, I always know that if something happens, it's that it's, it's probably not about me, you know? Yeah. I think I, I'm riffing off of that on the one hand, you know, when you're, 
the boss of the show, it really, you know, to take the full responsibility for it, never to throw anybody under the bus. I had situations where earlier in my career where people would throw staff writers under the bus as if it's their fault, what went wrong in an episode. Um, and then seeing guys like this, I mentioned Jeff Melvoin, who would stand up for them, just taking the full responsibility of it. And, all, and I will, one thing I remember, when we were doing Alias on a separate topic, but in terms of stuff that I learned early on, you know, J.J. had this amazing ability to, you know, you, these episodes get written quickly and the cuts get cut together quickly. And sometimes you look at them and you're like, oh, boy. Um, and he just had a great ability. And it's something I've taken to, like, say, okay, you know, it might not be everything we want it to be. Let's get rid of everything that's not helping. Let's now watch the episode again, see what is working, and then if it meant having to go back and reshoot stuff and get it right. But but being relentless and, and saying, like, we're not just going to put it on the air because it's time for the show to go on the air. Like, we're going to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week to get it right and not, you know, put it out into the world until we feel great about it. That's interesting. Like off of what Josh is saying, I I, I wrote the the season premiere this year of of Under the Dome, and and, and it, I remember being in the editing room uh, to watch the first cut of the episode. And my boss is a guy named Neil Bayer, who's been doing this for years and years and years. And like he really he understands the process, and he is unflappable, and just like nothing, <laughs> nothing can rattle him. And we watched the first cut of it, and I was like, this is terrible. <laughs> I was like, this, this, is, this, I can't, I, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And he was like, don't worry. You know, like, everything's going to turn out. It's gonna, and, and he was right. And, it's like, and he's always right about that kind of stuff. Because it's, whenever you watch the first cut of something, it's never going to be what you think it's going right. to be. There, there's, a saying, be. there's a saying, like, no show is as good as its dailies or as bad as its first cut. <laughs> like, <laughs> If you see the dailies, you're like, we're making it's it's Schiller's list. It's gone with the wind. And then you see the first cut and you're like, oh boy. Yeah. So so patience and faith, I guess. Yeah. Um yeah, as you move through this is for all of you, as you've moved through your career from writer to being an executive a producer, how does your role change practically? What are some of the practical um changes you go through with that? It it, it truly is it, you know, it's really the difference of, you know, it, I think everything shy of being the showrunner, there's a lot of time spent in the writer's room, you know, like, you know, really working primarily on the stories, you know, save, and then if it's your episode, then you sort of, you know, you go off and you sort of see your episode through. But yeah, when you're the showrunner, it's, you know, what's funny, actually, what happens when you become the showrunner, you spend all your time on notes calls with the network in the studio. <laughs> Truly, you're just like, I mean, it's like a walk-in, your assistant shows you your schedule for, your, for the day, and it's like, there's notes on the outline for this episode, the script from this episode, the first cut of this episode, the second cut of that episode. So you spend a lot more time on the phone wanting to get into the writer's room to see what they're cooking up, wanting to get to your computer to be, whether it's polishing the scripts or writing you know, an episode, but you spend a lot of time on notes calls. <laughs> well, what, what, what would be the perfect balance, though? For the, would you prefer to spend all of your time in the writer's room, or would that... Because I, I feel like that gets really... Well, and I should also say, in fairness, I have... I, I work with... Andre's been my partner for years, and now we have this crazy thing where there's, like, four of us doing Zoo together, which is awesome, actually, because... And that's why we did it, as a matter of fact, to find that perfect balance, yeah. because I love to be in the writer's room more than anything. Andre really thrives off of production, mm-hmm. you know... Scott is great, you know. So what we found ourselves doing is dividing and conquering a little bit. But I, I yeah, to me, being in the writer's room is my is my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, and the balance would be being in the writer's room 99% of the time and on notes calls with the <laughs> studio and the network, even though there could be smart stuff they're saying 1%. <laughs> Send an that. email for those. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Honestly. And it's nothing again, and I'm not just saying this because it's a CBS panel. Like, they, even when they have, smart, they have smart notes, it's just like being told of your mistakes. <laughs> being reminded daily. Yeah, being reminded oh, of your shortcomings. Right over here. Hi. Um, you mentioned with Zoo that you were determining the pacing, that things could have happened slower or faster. And this is a question for all three of you. What determines the pace of your show? How do you decide when to unveil uh, an event that you have an idea for? That's a great question. I, you know, I could speak for us. We, uh, you know, we, we had this sort of idea in the first season that we'd be like a, you know, a slower burn and this. And just what we realized, 
you in the looking back on it that there are certain cards we probably should have turned over earlier and, and made things move faster and and um because we really got to you know sort of amped up by the end you know by the finale we had this um you know really kind of like fun uh adrenaline kind of ride finale and so um coming into season two we just knew you know with the you know new creative team we wanted to keep that that energy up you know and infuse the second season with that kind of energy and action and and so i feel like we're we're burning through a lot more story this season a lot more quickly and 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 setting up cards and then turning them over not waiting so long to do that and and i just think that you know, it's it, we were talking about this earlier that you know we're on the summer and we kind of treat it like a summer blockbuster on TV and um, and you know those those have to move you know like you know Josh and you got to cook. James Patterson said to us because the, the phrase slow burn did come up very early on and he's like, <laughs> forget slow burn, how about burn burn? <laughs> we're like burn that, baby man. burn burn baby burn. <laughs> Yeah, it is, especially, it, again, it's this, again, a kind of negotiation with a network, because I think as writers, you'd always prefer to, like, sort of make the story a little bit more elastic and let it take a little more time and focus more on character, because writers love characters. Um, but but very often, like, we'll come up with an event or some, an incident that's going to occur, and 75% of the time, the network will say, can we make that happen faster? You know, and then you have to spin your wheels and figure out a different way to end. We had a, the, the episode that's being right now, we had this great reveal for the end of the episode. We were very excited about what this is, the, episode, the ninth episode of the season. We're like, perfect, this is going to be great. People are going to want to, it's going to drive us forward to the next episode. And they were like, can you put that at the end of the third act instead of the fourth act? And we were like, yeah. But then it requires you to like figure out what the end of the episode is going to be. So it's, it's very often it's those battles that you lose. There's this sort of like thing I feel like we found... And I don't know if it's a, it just feels like a, a rule of the writing room, which is, you know, on your board, you know, your stories stuff that, that everything shifts left. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> everything tends to move. Like when that happens, you go, okay, we'll take from the next episode. We'll, oh, yeah. You, know. you look at like you have that. I think most writers' rooms, they talk very early on before really getting into it about what the end of the season is going to be. What the big thing at the end of the season is there's always that point around like episode six or seven when you're like, that thing at the end of the season is pretty fucking good. Let's <laughs> take that note card. Yeah. End of episode six. <laughs> but no, no, we don't have an end. Doesn't right. matter. Yeah. Right, exactly. Deal that when you get to it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we have time for a couple more. Let's go right up front. Um, Wait for the microphone. Hi. Do y'all have the time and or desire to work on scripts outside your shows? Um... I have a there's a script there's a script right now that I, I have a, what's called a blind script at CBS Studios which is the studio that produces the show and so I'm obliged to write this script and I'm supposed to be writing it um, <laughs> right now yeah and and like I, I'm t- I'm not I'm not a good multitasker there are some writers I don't know if you guys are good at multitasking I'm bad at multitasking so like I I wish I had the time in the brain space to do it right now but but i probably am not going to be able to do it until we're finished with production in about a month and a half i have a partner so or if not if not a dozen partners but um i have a partner so we've been you know we're able to multitask and work in you know tv and movies and stuff like that's something that's sort of an itch that we like to scratch every now and again working on movies as well so yes i I I try to make myself do it every weekend, you know, for a li- for at least a little bit because, uh, like Adam was saying earlier, you, you, like I I've heard this from a lot of writers in the writers' rooms the last couple of years too, where they like you know I spend a lot of time on television and I got to the end of it and realized like I don't know how to write a script on myself anymore, you know, like that kind of thing. You're like I don't know if I could do it or that, and so I, I you know this season I really just started making myself on the weekends, even if it's just for a few hours to like sit down by myself and get, and also because there's a freedom in it, which is that, you know, like I'm not going to get notes calls on it yet. And things like that too. Like nobody's going to tell me where it's deficient. And for that, you know, so like, you know, for, for like that little bit of time, it's, it's sort of my own again. And I, and it's, and it's really fun and kind of freeing in a way. So, um, so I try to just make myself do it. It's like, it's, it's you know, at this point it's therapy. Um, be- because you open the door just a crack to talk about features. Um, Josh, you are one of the credited writers on, Mission Impossible, what? Ghost Protocol. Yes. What? The best one. <laughs> God damn it. Thank you, brother. I don't that have was a awesome. question, but I love that <laughs> Thank you. That was awesome. Thank you. I will watch it anytime. Right on, brother. <laughs> My wife stood, we went to see it over Christmas when it came out, and she had never seen any of those movies, and she stood up at, we went with her family, she stood up at the end of it and went, 
That was a tour de force. <laughs> I'm sending your wife a muffin basket. I love her. Um, I, I am curious to know, though, were you guys on it from the beginning? And yeah, we, is... were, we were. That was, that was a crazy phone call. We were working on Happy Town, mm-hmm. and I get a call from JJ, who I actually hadn't really spoken to in like a year or so, because he was off doing Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And he calls, and he's like, so... um." And we're like, we're human in Happy Town on this little ABC show that nobody ended up watching. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, um, and, uh, and he's like, so uh, Tom and I are starting to talk about uh, the next Mission Impossible and um, wanted to know if you wanted to have lunch next week so we could pitch you some ideas. And I was like, I think I'm available. Let me check my, okay. Yes, and it was crazy. We, yeah, we... we Did they have Brad Bird yet at that point? No, we, um, we went... We sat with Tom and JJ. They sort of had some vague notions. Tom, that's du- Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. <laughs> Sorry. Um, From um, the movies. <laughs> um, and they were talking about Dubai and some of the things that ended up in the movie. And then, yeah, we went off for six months, worked on the script with JJ. Then Tom, then Tom came in, back into the process, and then we got a script, and we, got, we gave the script to Brad, and then Brad came on the movie, and we were, yeah, we traveled with the movie, too, like, in Dubai, like, that whole scene when he's on the side of the building, I was the scared Jewish kid inside, like, afraid to look at... <laughs> that scene is the best. I was best. afraid of the heights being inside the building, and he was climbing on the outside. That's that awesome. is amazing. It was, it was cool. It was cool. So you, I mean, you actually can feel some ownership. I know with features, it often... Becomes no, we a different were, creature. Yeah, no, that was an amazing experience. I mean, we were the first writers on and the last writers off. That's awesome. I mean, yeah. Congratulations. Really great. All right, I want to uh, very quickly, starting here with Adam, go down the line and tell us what you are watching on TV these days. What are you oh. getting excited or inspired about? What is your room talking about? What are you talking about with your friends and loved ones? Um, I don't talk to my loved ones at all about my TV watching. <laughs> uh, I've been watching Game of Thrones, of course. <laughs> Uh, I've been watching Silicon Valley. Been watching uh, I, Louis just finished, which I adored. Um, and it's always oh, I'm catching up on Ray Donovan right now, hmm. on the second season of Ray Donovan because uh, I watched the first season, I liked it, and I was told that by of someone I trust that the second season was very good, and so I'm watching it, and it is very good. Josh, <laughs> a big Game of Thrones fan, big Silicon Valley. We just did Transparent. Which was awesome. We just did Game of Thrones from the beginning. I had never seen it, so that was a massive accomplishment in the Applebaum household. Um, That's and, like reading a book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what we're huge fans of, and I only bring it, it the, the season's over, but only because it ties back to TV. Like, on starting on Alias, myself, Jeff Pinkner, Drew Goddard, we have this, we are all massive, pathetic. Survivor fans, oh. and like we have this, it's still good, it's still awesome. And this we to the that. point where we'll like we will like fly to New York to go to the live finale. Like, next time you watch a Survivor finale, you may see Drew Goddard in the background cheering, <laughs> or me and I'm the, the chubby guy sitting next to him, <laughs> like that. But a uh, huge Survivor fan. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know we were including reality though. Like, so if we are including, I'll allow it. If we're including I'll allow it. reality, I will, I will say American Ninja Warrior. All right. Which I well, and if we're including love. reality, I know from my wife's excitement, the Caitlyn Jenner show is oh, going to be a big oh. show in the Applebaum house. <laughs> Mickey, what do you want? I'm going to have to do, complete the hat trick on Game of Thrones because I'm a huge fan of that. And I, in fact, the last week's episode, uh, the last two episodes, including the one last week, which I feel like is one of the all-time best ones, was directed by a guy named Miguel Sapochnik, who directed our finale. He directs uh, for us too, yeah. Yeah, he's awesome. He's a, the, and the greatest guy. So I was so proud watching that. Um, and uh, I'm watching Silicon Valley too, which I love. I don't watch a lot of reality TV. Uh, I did watch the show for a while. It's like I have my dignity intact. <laughs> well, no, because the next thing I was getting ready to say is I did watch the show called Branson Famous, which was about this like family in Branson, this like family like dinner theater show. So I watched that for a while. That was that that, <laughs> you that counts, to the right? Bottom of the pile. <laughs> <to it. laughs> We're talking about Survivor and right. Yeah, I know, but. <laughs> It's, it's my musical theater background. There's a part of me that, you know, it felt like Summerstock. Uh-huh. Oh, and, oh, and also just because we're in Austin, too, and it's shot here, we were talking American Crime, which I know doesn't take place in Austin, but it's supposed to be Modesto, California, but that, I really, really enjoyed that as well. Let's give a round of applause to all of our panelists. Watch their shows, you guys, starting soon. Thank you, guys. Now leaving Nerdist.com. What? <laughs>